The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. Welcome. We come now to Psalm 51. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, there's one under a chair in front of you. We're on page 474. Uh, Also, while you're looking there, there should be a guest card on the back of the chair. If you're first time with us today, we'd love for you to fill out that guest card at the end of the service. We're going to pass the offering plate, and we only want you to participate today by placing that filled out card in the offering plate to let us know that you are here with us. For the next three weeks, we're going to work through uh, what I'm calling a series called Have Mercy as we work our way through Psalm 51. Today, we'll give attention to the first six verses. So I invite you to stand, please. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray now that as we take up your holy word which is clear and to the point here. May we no longer resist and try to hide what is obvious to you. May we come now with repentant hearts, confessing our sin before you and receiving from you what only you can do. Give power to the preaching and to the receiving of your word through the Holy Spirit, we plead. In Christ's name, amen. Can be seated. At some point in your life, in your childhood, in your young adult life, or in your older years, you've done something that was hidden that at some point got found out. And when it was found out, you were devastated. Maybe tears, maybe lots of tears. Here's what I want to pursue today. What is the difference between being found out and devastated and repentance? Because here's what I found as a pastor and a parent and as a person. They look very similar. Sometimes to us they look the same. The difference is in the outcome. And Psalm 51 reveals the outcome. What happens when we come confessing and repenting? 
Here's our main idea today. The awareness of sin before the Lord God results in crying to him for mercy. To the choir master Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba last week, we looked at what led up to that moment, 2 Samuel 11, David's interaction with Bathsheba, the killing of Uriah, her husband, trying to attempt to cover up the adulterous affair, then Nathan coming to him and confronting him, and David saying, I have sinned against the Lord and done what is evil in his sight. It is in this moment of, of black self-knowledge that, that David explores the depths of his guilt, and he also explores the farthest reaches of salvation. David, to his credit, does not try to cover over any longer. He deals with his sin as horrendous before God. He blames no one but himself. He begs to God for forgiveness. David confesses his sin in repentance. I want to define some terms. Confession is agreeing specifically with God about our sin. Confession is not simply admitting sin. You can admit your sin and have no progress forward in your relationship with the Lord or in your relationship with others. You can simply say, I did it. That's not what confession is. Confession is agreeing specifically with God that what you have done, God has said you must not do. You're agreeing that it is in fact sin. And in this, it's involving repentance which is turning away from the sin confessed. So in this confession, you are saying to God, you're no longer holding on to this, you're turning away from sin. Now here's what I think. Many of you are treating the way you are treating forgiveness with God. I think many of you see it as you fill out your withdrawal slip, you stop by the bank, you go in, you go to the teller, you slide the withdrawal slip across, They punch a few buttons in the computer, they hand you the money, and you walk out. I think many of us are coming to God saying, God, you're the one who holds the forgiveness. I confess, forgive me. And then you get your withdrawal and you walk away unmoved, living just like you did before. That's not confession and repentance. That is not what is being described here. The prayer of confession and repentance is deeply personal. It is also incredibly painful. Now what we have done is we have created a society that says, it's not my fault. Now this, this, this is not just confined to young people. This is, this is pervasive. It's across the board. It's not my fault It's your fault or it's somebody else's fault. And our society says, avoid pain at all costs. However, we're we're in some of the deepest pain a culture's ever been in. We're just all pretending we're not in pain. So this is a personal, painful plea before the the Lord God. We're going to see it from two sides. First, The awareness of sin before and against the Lord results in crying for mercy. So I'm asking the question, why is David crying 
for mercy. Why does it start this way? Have mercy on me, O God. The first thing we're going to see as we work through this first six verses is that David has a realization of who he is and what he has done. Notice personal pronoun. Have mercy on me. In his book, The Enemy Within, at the beginning of the first chapter, he quotes a cartoon, Pogo. And Pogo says, quote, We have met the enemy, and he is us. The first realization that we've got to have is, I'm the enemy. Today is one of those days when you do not primarily need to be thinking about somebody else. If you brought somebody with you to church or they've come with you or maybe they come every week but they're not really responding to the Lord and you're sitting there thinking, Lord, I hope he hears this. I hope he hears this. Or you're sitting there thinking, my mother-in-law really needs this sermon. No, brothers and sisters, this is a day when you need to think about you. You. I, I am emotionally exhausted. After spent time in this text, and now for the third time today, I am reamed out. I know who I am. I understand the depth of my sin. Now, I wouldn't understand it apart from the Bible. Here's what I'd say. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I do some wrong stuff, but I'm a pretty good person in the main. Sounds like Gastonia, doesn't it? (laughs) David didn't have a Gastonia theology. He had a biblical theology. Blot out my transgressions. That word means rebellion. I intentionally stepped over the line. David knew God said, do not commit adultery. David knew God said, do not cover your neighbor's wife. David knew that God said, do not commit murder. And he did it. He stepped over. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. What's he saying here? I'm guilty. Not just I've done wrong. I am guilty before you. I'm guilty of this deliberate act. Cleanse me from my sin. And this is how most of us normally think about sin. This, this, this word means to miss the mark. Think about an archer shooting at a target. That you miss off to the right or left, or you actually drop the target, you fall short of it, and don't hit it. We kind of like to live here, you know, I'm not perfect, I don't really hit the mark. Now this is serious, because we're missing God's mark. The Bible says we fall short of the glory of God. That's a serious indictment. He presses further. For I know my transgressions. I know I'm rebellious. My sin is ever before me. I am consciously aware. Now, I'm I'm not sure where I come down on this exactly. I, I don't know there's enough internal evidence. But many commentators think that from the time he commits the sin with Bathsheba until Nathan comes to him, months have passed. Long period of time. So for this long period of time, here's what was always in David's mind, what he had done. God has given each person here a conscience, whether you're a Christian or not. Scripture says in the last days we'll sear our conscience. In other words, we'll we'll so give ourselves into sin that we won't even feel it much anymore. 
But for the Christian, we know it. Because the Spirit of God revives within us. And, and, and I just wonder today with a deep, heavy burden, how many of you are grieving the Spirit of God today? That again and again, He has brought it to your mind over and over and over. And you press it down and you press it down. I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. The other confessional psalm is Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, using the exact same language, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave my iniquity. We must acknowledge and we must confess the depth of our sin. But David's not finished. He doesn't just talk about the depth of his sin. He talks about the severity of his sin. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When I first read this, I have a pause in my mind. I say, well, wait a minute. David sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Israel. Against you and you only have I sinned. What does he mean? Here's what he means. Ultimately, sin, even if it's against somebody else, is a sin against holy God. We must come to understand that our sin is a breaking of God's law and a rebellion against our king. At the deepest level, when we sin, regardless of what it is, we sin against God. John Calvin said, and I quote, None of us will ever seriously apply to God for pardon until the true knowledge of our sin inspires us with fear. In other words, you're never going to confess your sin and repent until you have a holy fear before a holy God. This is what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the Lord high and lifted up and the seraphim and they're shouting to each other, saying to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the temple shook and the house was filled with smoke. He didn't get on Twitter and tweet, hashtag great worship service. Here's what he did. Hashtag woe is me. Woe is me. We are way too flippant with God. And the reason we're so flippant with God is because we think real high of ourselves. David understood. Isaiah understood. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It is severe what we have done in the sight of God. And then one more thing, one more thing. Not that you're not already hemmed in, but we're about to all get hemmed in. Because some of you are still convinced you're a pretty good person. I'm glad you're convinced of that. But let me just tell you one more thing the Bible says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the theological concept of original sin. That is, you were born sinful. You were born with the seed of iniquity in you. That's why Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam. He's a, we're all descendants of Adam. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. 
And what that means is we inherited a sin nature, and in fact, we have all acted on it, and we have all sinned. Now, Paul picks this up in Ephesians chapter 2, and he presses it even deeper. You were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does he mean here? He doesn't mean that the only reason you sin is imitation. Now, you do sin because of imitation. <laughs> I remember I used to say, I'm not going to do what my parents did. Just come hang out at my house for a while. And my kids are walking around right now because they're all at college age. I'm not going to do that. Yep, welcome home one day. We learn by imitation. But even if you had parents who were godly people who walked with Jesus, you're still going to sin. Why? Because it is inherent to your nature. It's who you are. So can I, can I just have a little sidebar with parents for a minute? I think there's this idea going on in the evangelical world that if you as a parent will do exactly the right things, your kid will turn out saved and perfect. Here's what your kids got to first do. They got to understand they're lost before they ever get found. And if you raise them to believe they're perfect, they don't have a need for Jesus. I want my kids to know they're sinners and lost. By the way, none of you have done this, but we didn't parent perfect children. For those of you who raised Jesus, I guess we got another Savior. I don't know. But anyway, you know we don't. We've got to come to understand these things. So let's make sure we got three connected things going on in this text, right? I don't want you to lose it. Number one, we sin. These acts that we do, we have sinned against, we've done what God said not to do, or we have refused what he said to do. We sinned. Second, we have a sin nature. That we are sinful. And there's one more thing. At the beginning of Ephesians 2, and you were dead. So, illustration. Let's imagine it's a funeral. There's a casket here, dead body in here. I have a question about the dead body. What can the dead person do? Nothing. So the third thing you have is the inability of man to do anything about their sin and sin nature. We're in a problem. And I think, I think some people, even today, even in evangelicalism, are hearing, if you'll just pray this prayer right here, you'll be right with God. It's kind of like going to the bank. Just pray this prayer, you'll be right with God, just going about your life. That's not Christianity. Because it's not just about you. Here's why you cry for mercy. You understand and aware who you are. But more importantly, it's the awareness of the nature and the ability of the Lord God results in crying for mercy. It's the nature of the Lord that causes the cry. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Why does David 
cry to God for mercy. Because there's nothing he can do about it. We can only get what we deserve on our own. But only God can give us what we need. And what we need is mercy. Mercy is the sole basis of any person's approach to God because we are all sinners and sinful. We don't come to God on the basis of justice. There's a lot of shouting and screaming right now in American culture about justice. We don't come to God on on the basis of justice. If we came to God on the basis of justice, he'd strike us with fear and we'd hide. We come to God on the basis of his mercy. Now, this is what's so fascinating in this Hebrew text. This is an imperative. Have mercy. How could you be so bold to say to God, have mercy? You're pleading with God an earnest request that he have favor on you, that he, New American Standard, he be gracious to you. So this plea, this opening plea, have mercy, is the language of somebody who understands, I don't have any claim for this. There's nothing in me. There's no basis for God to give this to me. So what's the basis? What's the basis of God to give this mercy? According to your steadfast love. We've looked at this word many times as we've worked through the Psalms. It's the one word translated into two for us, hesed. Um, It's the covenant-keeping love of God. That God is acting according to what he has revealed and promised that he would do. I have a question here. Who's broken the covenant between God and David at this point? David. So what's his appeal? His appeal is to the one who will never break his covenant. To the one who has steadfast love. Have mercy on me. Not based on how much good I did before I sinned. Have mercy on me, not because of me, but because of you and your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. So God's mercy is not limited as we would think. God's mercy is abundant. It is overflowing. Now, I'm going to go to Psalm 86. If you want to turn there, you can. Psalm 86, verse 15. And we're going to... Give a little bit clearer understanding of what's happening here. I think think some of us come to God and ask God to do things because of what we want God to do or we think God can do it. So why would we think God could do it? We ought to come this way. We ought to come knowing that God can do it because, listen, we know who he is. In Psalm 86, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's what what Psalm 86 is saying. It's not just I know you can do this. It's saying, God, this is who you are. So based off of who God is, that's how David can so boldly come and say, Have mercy. Now, God is able. There are things that God can do. And praise God, in Psalm 51, we see the things that God can do. So let's focus now on the ability of the Lord to do what only he can do and what we cannot do. 
God blots out our transgressions. He wipes out our rebellion. He applies the righteousness of Christ to us. What we do not earn or deserve, what Christ has accomplished, is applied to us. When we, in fact, have been the rebels. Blot it out. Erase it. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And this is a a word picture. And uh, Colin, in preparation, he studied the text in the video he put together when the transition for me coming up to preach, had the guy, I don't know if you noticed, slapping the clothes on the rock. That's what the word means here. It means a filthy garment that's being thoroughly washed. Trying to get the filth out of it. That's the image. It's the exact image. To wash me thoroughly. It's implying that, that I'm a filthy sinner. David's a filthy sinner. His iniquity, his guilt needs to be washed. And then it shifts another image. Cleanse me. So cleanse me is not washing on the rock. This is what the priest would do before he entered the temple. This is the purifying cleansing before you went into God. So cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me from missing the mark. Cleanse me from falling short of the glory of God so that I can come into the presence of God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Nothing is hidden from God. Some of you are sitting beside your wife right now with heinous sin hidden from her. It's not hidden from the Lord. He knows. The rest of us can be tricked. but God will never be tricked. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now hear me. David is not confessing weakness. He's confessing wickedness. That's where you've got to come to, brothers and sisters. You're not saying, God, I'm a weak person. That's true. But I am a wicked person. It's not just I did this by accident. I have committed an atrocity before you. This is a heinous thing. I've done it against you and in your sight so that you may be justified in your words. In other words, God, what you have said is right. All right, listen to me, young people. Listen to me carefully, adults as well. Those of you who want to call the Word of God into question and say, well, you know, it's an ancient book, and you know, so you, you know, sometimes back then things were different than we're now. Listen to me. The Bible is as old as the garden. In other words, God's been speaking since the garden, and the same stuff's been going on since the garden. The devil's been coming and saying, <clears throat> did God really say? Did he? Oh, come on. He's withholding from you. So you, you, you need to throw off what he said and go do what you want, and then you'll be happy. There's death on the other side of that. Death. And God is justified in what he said, and he is blameless in his judgment. This is calling us back to Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, verse 1, it says, The mighty one, the Lord God, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above, to the earth, that he may judge who? His people. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declares his righteousness for God himself is judge. And when he judges, he is blameless in his 
judgment. Here's what frightens me. Frightens me into the very core of who I am. But there are those of you who sit through last week and this week, and you may even return for the next two weeks as I work my way through Psalm 51, and you will hold on to your sin and stand before holy God on the day of judgment and answer for it. Oh, God, have mercy on you. God is justified in his words, and he is blameless in his judgment. And you, you, you may not like me right now. You may not like the way I'm preaching. You may run and go find you another church that doesn't say these kind of things. But here's how I see it in my life, and here's how I see it in preaching. God, by his grace, has told you the truth today. It is a gracious act that God has spoken. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin, and my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in, my, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom, moral insight in the secret heart. So David finds corruption and deceit within himself. He can't change his sinful condition. Only God can do it. So he appeals to God to teach him wisdom, that is moral insight, practical knowledge that enables him to navigate the difficulties and temptations of life in his, the secret heart. How does God do this? How's God going to teach me wisdom in the secret heart? Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. It's about the middle of your Bible. Ezekiel's a rather long book. After you pass Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Ezekiel 36. Here's the promise of the new covenant. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you the heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a work that only God can do. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. A dead man can do nothing. So God himself is the one who comes and gives a new heart and puts a new spirit within us. And when he puts his new spirit and new heart within us, he will cause us to walk in his statutes, to do what he says, to be careful to obey his rules. So the sinner, the sinner has two needs, pardon for sin and the purity of heart. So this first six verses have to do primarily with the pardon of sin. Verse six is transitioning us to the purity of heart. We'll pick that up next week but we're not finished with pardon for sin. I have a question. Is the awareness of my sin before the Lord God resulting in crying for mercy? Lungard in his book says, few people have come to terms with the law of sin. If more people had, we would hear more complaints of it in prayers we would see more struggling against it and we would find less of its fruit in the world and I will add, and in the church. It's almost as if we've just rolled over to sin 
born that way. Listen to me. You weren't reborn that way. There's an ongoing battle, the law of sin. It's in Romans chapter 7. I turn over there with me. The law of sin is this realization that I, as a Christian, have a lifelong battle with my flesh. Paul says, verse 24, wretched man that I am. Now I push back to those who translate Romans 7 or interpret Romans 7 to say that Paul is talking about his life before he's a Christian. He uses the present tense here. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me from the law of sin? Who's going to deliver me from my flesh? Here's what my flesh would rather do. My flesh would have rather watched TV all day yesterday. My flesh would have, would have rather done something a whole lot easier than get ready for this sermon. Your flesh right now says, get up and get out of here. Go to the bathroom. The flesh wants the easy path. And, and all the flesh is saying at first is, let's just go down the easy path. Let's just take it. Just, this dude's too serious. This Bible stuff's too serious. Just take that. It's okay. All you got to do is go take a withdrawal. Here's what some of you are doing. and You don't even know you're doing it. Let's just imagine. Let's just imagine. I'm not trying to scare you. I think we're far enough removed from it. I can use this illustration. Let's just imagine that seated beside you today is a suicide bomber. Now, they're not going to bomb you today. They're not going to bomb us today. They're just here to make us all comfortable. Get used to them. Now, they're strapped on today. They could do it today if they wanted to, but not today, not today. In fact, they're going to invite you to lunch. Got a really nice car, great boat to go hang out on the lake with. Going to take you to a nice dinner. But one day, one day, when you least expect it, boom, you hear me. That's your flesh. And there's so many of you playing with a suicide bomber right now, and you have no idea what is about to happen to you. It will go off. And not only will it ruin your life, it will have tremendous effect on everybody who's around you. There's so many people who are making friends with their flesh and the law of sin. And we're scared to death. You know, well, I didn't want to be legalistic. Listen to me. I'm just going to say this blunt and plain. There ain't nobody at this church in danger of legalism. And there are very few in this town in danger anymore. Legalism isn't our problem anymore. That's not what's plaguing the church right now. What's plaguing the church is, it's okay. It's okay. We're dropping our guard and dropping our guard. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Soon there's not going to be a church in this part of the world. Somebody said to me afterward, I've never heard a a sermon on Psalm 51. And I said, what does that tell you? 
Because most of us are convinced of this. If I preach like this, you won't come back, and some of you won't. Some of you won't. But if we don't talk like this, and if we don't reveal what's really true about us, there will be no people like us anymore. Because what the flesh wants, the law of sin wants, just blend in and give up. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Who will set me free from this body of death? Answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So for some of you, Christianity is this. It was the day at a revival or at the end of a service like this where a preacher asked you to bow your head and to confess your sin and become a Christian, and you did that, and then the rest of your life you went right back to living just like you're supposed to. You don't understand Christianity. Christianity is this, cl- this clear and constant prayer. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What you got to do with the suicide bomber? You want the answer? You got to kill him. got to kill him. That's the point of Romans 7. You put sin to death. You know who's giving you the strength to do it? The warrior. Not you. The warrior who is Jesus Christ the Lord. He didn't just come to give you eternity. He came to give you life. Life right now. So I don't know if I believe that. Then Here's my question to you. How could you stake Jesus on eternity, but you don't believe he can set you free now? That's illogical. Here's the truth. We like him. We like the suicide bomber. He's a nice guy. Don't judge him. He's my friend. He's going to kill you. Today, what you need to do is to follow Psalm 51. You need to be aware that you're standing before holy God. And this God is gracious. He's merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. And you need to cry to him that you are in fact sinner and sinful and unable to help yourself. I want you to bow as you pray. I intentionally have not used a lot of specific sin today because here's what I trust and believe, that the Spirit of God has put his finger exactly on what it is and where it is that you are sinning and struggling. But you need to be specific right now with God and you need to confess that to him in a spirit of repentance. And you need to receive from God what only he can do. And you need to ask God And trust God that he is going to give you what he delights in your inner being to teach you wisdom. The insight you need to not walk in that sin any longer. 
Would you say if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I plead right now that we will not abuse that. That we would come in a spirit of repentance. That we would understand that we're about to move to a holy moment. And you've been clear in your word that if we eat this bread or drink this cup in an unworthy manner, we are guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So you instruct us, you implore us to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of us are weak and ill and some have even died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, Lord, as we confess our sin and our need for Christ, we thank you that according to your loving kindness, you hear our prayer, you receive it, and you forgive us. Lord, I pray for those who have never admitted their need for Christ, and today is a day of salvation, that they would repent of their sin and cry to you. I pray for the believers lived in a life steeped with sin, trying to cover it up, that they would repent of their sin today. Humility approached the table. So will you confess your sin and your need for Christ? Communion is for those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone as their Lord and Savior. Communion is for every believer who continues to confess their need for Christ. never come to a place now or in eternity that we are not in need of Jesus. The simple act delivered to us by the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed that when he gave thanks he broke the bread and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here's what Jesus was saying. I took what you deserved. You deserve the judgment of God, and I took it on the cross. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. His cup, this cup, reminds us of the blood of Christ shed for us that washes, that gives us the thorough washing that we need. So as often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death. This is no light thing. If you are not a Christian, do not come to this table. If you're not a Christian, we're going to have pastors to my right or left who can talk with you right now and give counsel to you and pray with you and lead you as to how you might know Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you're a Christian who has not come to a place of repentance over sin, do not come to this table yet. But God, by his grace, has led you to repentance today. Repent and then receive. God, move among your people. Give a 
spirit of humility and brokenness. May there not be anything done perfunctory at this moment. May we not act like we're going to the bank. We are the blood-bought body of Jesus. We've come together to celebrate your meal. May we do it now in humility. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask our servers to move to your place, please. There are going to be people either in front of you or beside you or behind you. When we stand in just a moment, the worship team will begin to lead us in a song. You make your way to one of these servers, you take the bread and the cup and you return to your seat. You can either be seated or stand. You before the Lord at the moment you're ready, you receive it. After you receive it, you join in song and in worship. May this truly be a time of worship among us all. May we do this in remembrance of Christ, who alone can set us free. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.